Can't Wait for Christmas is a proud member of the Christmas Podcast Network. Hey, buddy, what you doing? Is it Christmas yet? No, sorry, not yet. I can't wait for Christmas. Yeah, I can't wait for Christmas either. In fact, let's celebrate now. <laughs> Welcome to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. <laughs> Welcome, Yule Believers, to a special episode of the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. I'm Tim Babb, and it all comes down to this. It's the rumble in the Kringle, the thriller with vanilla, the brawl of Deck the Halls. Yes, it's the finals of Merry Music Madness. All year long, we've been doing a bracket-style elimination competition to find out who is the ultimate Christmas singer or singing group as voted by you. We are down to our last two singers. Whoever wins this vote will be the Merry Music Madness champion. So let's look at the road our two finalists took to make it here. Our first singer has been dominating this entire competition. He got 100% of the vote against Ariana Grande, 84% of the vote when he defeated the Beach Boys, 90% of the vote when he defeated Gene Audrey. His toughest battle was when he got 76% of the vote against Vince Guaraldi, but last time he got 88% of the vote to defeat Johnny Mathis and secure a place in the finals. It's Bing Crosby! I'll be home for Christmas you can plan on me. Our other contestant got off to a strong start, defeating Elmo and Patsy with 97% of the vote. Then he achieved a win over the Carpenters with 76% of the vote. Next, a decisive victory over Perry Como with 82% of the vote. Then he got 76% of the vote against our friend Kelly Clarkson. But last time was his greatest challenge. It was neck and neck the entire time. But with 54% of the vote, he has emerged victorious against Nat King Cole and secured his spot in the finals. It's... Andy Williams! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in one or soap and sleigh. So now it's time for the main event. It's the final showdown of Merry Music Madness. It's a battle royale between Bing Crosby and Andy Williams, competing to see who is the ultimate Christmas singer based on your votes. But I feel like you should know more about each of them before you vote. Fortunately, we've done a deep dive on both of these Christmas icons on previous episodes, so we're going to have an encore presentation of both deep dives today so you can be an informed voter. We're going to start with Andy Williams, but before we do, I should explain a few running gags that will be included in this segment. You see, in the episode where we discussed Andy Williams, there was a part earlier in that show where we looked at crazy candy cane flavors that had come out that year. One of them was clam-flavored, but I had trouble trying to say the words clam-flavored candy Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. Apparently I'm still having that problem, but that is going to come up again in the segment you're about to hear. Also, there's this guy. Howdy, partner! Yeah, we have a lot of imaginary listeners on the show that pipe in. It's kind of hard to explain, but that's what this guy is. He happens to sound like an old-timey prospector. That's right! I'm the rootinest, tootinest imaginary listener there is! Yeah, sure. So when you hear him show up without any context or explanation, it's going to seem kind of random, but I assure you, it's completely random. You make some odd creative choices on this show, partner. 
Undoubtedly. But without further ado, let's get to know our first Merry Music Madness finalist, Andy Williams. Just to those sleigh bells jingling, ring ting tingling too. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. So a lot of popular artists perform Christmas songs, and if they're lucky, one of their Christmas songs gets thrown into the rotation every year. But as taste in popular music change and new generations drive what is popular, their non-Christmas music fades from the public memory. After a while, you get a generation that only knows the artist as the one who sings that Christmas song. Now, this effect is going to vary for how old you are. Like, for me, Mariah Carey was the soundtrack to my high school years. But I'm sure for my sons, she'll be that Christmas lady. All this is to say that Andy Williams falls into that category for me. Now, I'm sure if you're older than me, or more in touch with things musically, what I've just said is worse than tasting a clam-flavored candy... Nope, I thought I could do it. Whew, sorry. Nope, can't, can't do it. Can't do it. Back to Andy Williams. Anyway, I decided I would change this and learn about Andy Williams' life and career. All of it. Not just the Christmas stuff, but of course, we're going to focus on that Christmas stuff too. But first, let's hear about how it all began from the man himself. Well, I was lived in a small town, a large family, a very loving family. Uh, it was during the Depression years. I was born in 1927, right in the end of the Depression. And uh, it hit that, hit America quite, a, quite hard. A lot of people were out of work, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people you'd see drifting across the Midwest, finding someplace, you know, to go where they could start over again or, or find a job or find do something. And uh, so we were poor, like everybody was poor. And we didn't know it. We thought we were just fine. As long as we had something to eat, we were fine. And um, children don't know they're poor. You know, you wear your hand-me-down clothes and they're as long as they're neat and clean and they're they've been mended and socks are all matching. <laughs> matching. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> Kids don't care. Yeah, and and uh, we started singing in the church and my father had this idea that we could become singers and become popular group and got us into Des Moines, Iowa and on the radio. And we did radio for years and years and years and maybe 10 years before we moved to California. So Andy and his three brothers, Don, Bob, and Dick, formed a quartet called the Williams Brothers. Before they made that move to California, they were regulars on the radio in Des Moines, Iowa, then Chicago, Illinois, and finally Cincinnati, Ohio. Once they got to California, they landed a contract with MGM Studios and appeared in several movies. That's also how they landed a gig singing backup for Bing Crosby on the 1944 song, Swingin' on a Star. Oh, would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. Or would you rather be a pig? It was while working for MGM that they caught the attention of Kay Thompson. She added the boys to her choir at MGM, and when their MGM contract ended, she decided to take the boys out on the road as a nightclub act, Kay Thompson and the Williams Brothers. An amazingly creative name there. Andy and Kay also developed a romantic relationship, despite the fact that they were nearly 20 years apart in age. But hey, I'm not judging. And even many years later, it was clear how much Andy admired Kay. She was very kind to me and helped me a great deal when I was starting out on my solo career. Did arrangements for me, uh, wrote some special material for me, helped get me into my first job at the Blue Angel, even, all, even, even during the Steve Allen Tonight times. She would work with me on vocal arrangements and things, and I'd take them in and get somebody to arrange them, you know, for the band. She was a great influence on me and got me my record contract with Cadence. Very nice lady, very wonderful person. 
They toured all over the country very successfully until Andy's brothers decided they were done with the music scene. Then Andy was faced with a dilemma. He was trained as a group singer, but now he was without a group. He decided to strike out on his own. He was touring some, as he called them, rough clubs. And as a struggling stand-up comic, I can certainly relate to working in some rough places when you're trying to make a name for yourself. Unless, of course, Andy has a story that he told on the Michael Parkinson show that makes my experience sound downright pleasant by comparison. I used to work in, in uh, a tuxedo, and I was working in this one little place in uh, Pittsburgh. I'll never forget it. I was standing by the cash register, ready to go on, and the man was introducing me. And I was so worried about getting fired or losing my job, and I was about to go on. He said, uh, here's a young man that I heard sing in New York, and I felt this gun in my back. And the guy said, uh, open the cash register. And he thought I was the maitre d'. Because I was the only one with the tuxedo on. And I said, I don't know how to open this cash register. He said, I'm telling you, open it up or, you know, you're going to get it. And about that time, the guy said, here he is, Andy Williams. I said, excuse me, I've got to go on. <laughs> and I went on stage and when I got up there, I looked around and he's still standing there with his gun. Very uh, confused and, and not knowing what to do. He couldn't believe that I was... Uh, willing to get shot rather than get fired. <laughs> okay. I guess this goes without saying, but I should never compare my life experiences to those of Andy Williams. Are you saying you never had a face down a gun in one of those rootin' tootin' Wild West comedy shows you did? Nope. The closest I can come is when a beer glass dropped on stage next to me in a show in Utah. Weak sauce, partner! Yeah. Anyway, grinding away in those rough clubs eventually paid off for Williams. His friend saw him perform in a club, and his friend happened to be a producer for Steve Allen's Tonight Show. And that's how Andy Williams started appearing regularly on The Tonight Show. During that time, he'd gotten a few record deals. He moved between a few different labels in the beginning, partially because they were making odd choices, like releasing his first Christmas single only a few days before Christmas so nobody had a chance to buy it, or trying to fit Andy into a style that wasn't his strength. He told the story one time where his manager brought him a song they wanted Andy to sing, and initially, Andy declined. The song was more in Elvis Presley style, which was popular at that time, but not really Andy's typical singing style. So his manager said, if you don't want a hit record, I'll just give the song to somebody else. So it turns out Andy did want a hit record, so he recorded the song, and he did indeed get a hit with the song Butterfly. You tell me you love me, you say you'll be true, then you fly around with somebody new, but I'm crazy about you, you butterfly. Between the steady stream of top 100 hits and his regular appearances on The Tonight Show, Andy Williams was making a name for himself. He got asked to do a 13-week summer replacement series for Pat Boone on ABC. That went fairly well. In fact, the next year, CBS asked him to replace Gary Moore for the summer, and his replacement show was so popular that NBC gave him his own show in 1962. But before that show hit the air, a little movie called Breakfast at Tiffany's would change his life forever. In the film, Audrey Hepburn sang the song Moon River. The song was nominated for an Oscar for Best Song. The Academy asked Andy Williams to perform the song at the Academy Awards ceremony that year. Fortunately, Andy thought ahead and recorded a studio version of the song before his Academy Awards performance. It dropped the day after the awards and was a huge smash hit, so much so that Andy started off every episode of his TV show with the first eight bars of Moon River. Moon River, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. You heartbreaker, wherever you're going, I'm going your way. 
The song Moon River became so synonymous with Andy Williams that he would title his autobiography Moon River and Me, and when he opened his own theater in Branson, Missouri, he called it the Moon River Theater. Branson, Missouri? That's country music land! That's what Andy thought, but his brother convinced him he could do well there. I came down here because my brother Don was managing a guy named Ray Stevens, who's a great country artist. And I knew him very well, and Don said, uh, you ought to come down and see what's happening in Branson. It's all country, but you ought to see it. I mean, they got four million people that come here a year. Well, now, you know, 14 years later, they have over seven million. People visit uh, Branson every year. And it's getting bigger all the time. But after I opened here um, and was successful, then a lot of people came. Wayne Newton came. I mean, people that weren't uh, country. The Osmond brothers were the first ones who called me and said, do you think we'd do well there? I said, great. And then, because you've been on television so much and you're such big stars, you know, that even the country people know you. That's why I figured with myself. I mean, even... Even the country people must have seen me sometime on television. It was on nine years. And um, sold millions and millions of records, so they obviously have heard me. And uh, Don says, I think, uh, I think they'll come and see you. I'm quite sure they will. So I built the theater not knowing, but uh, they did. They did come. Now it's about half and half, half country and half pop. But back to his variety show. It ran for nine years and was a great success as well. Not a ratings juggernaut, but very respectable. He had great and varied guests from the Jackson 5, Elton John, and the Bee Gees to Ella Fitzgerald, Dick Van Dyke, Bob Hope, and Judy Garland. Fun fact, the Andy Williams Show introduced the world to the Osmonds. The show won three Emmy Awards for Outstanding Variety Series. And speaking of awards, Andy never won a Grammy, but he was nominated six times for hits like The Hawaiian Wedding Song, Danny Boy, and Days of Wine and Roses. He also was a very popular host of the Grammys. In fact, he hosted the show seven years in a row, and I believe he still remains the individual who has hosted the mosted. Hosted the... he, He hosted the Grammys the most. In addition to being a big hit here in America, he also got a lot of love in the UK. In fact, even though his heyday was in the 60s and 70s, he made a huge comeback in the UK in 1999. A Fiat commercial featured his 1967 song, Music to Watch Girls By, and the song went all the way to number 9 on the charts, which was especially impressive considering it peaked at number 33 back in 1967. The boys watch the girls while the girls watch the boys who watch the girls go by. I do I. They solemnly convene to make the scene Which is the name of the game Watch a guy or watch a dame on any street in town Up and down And over and across Romance's boss That's a lot of background, and there's still more I haven't even covered, like his great friendship with Robert Kennedy, the fact that he testified in his ex-wife's murder trial, and the fact that he owned more than a million dollars worth of Navajo blankets. But... You know the name of this podcast, and you know what we're here to talk about. How did Andy Williams come to be known as Mr. Christmas? It really stems from the yearly Christmas specials on the Andy Williams Show. came about because Christmas, uh, you know, was one of the weeks that we did our show, you know. And so when, when uh, December came about, and, you know, we thought, well, we got better do something for Christmas, you know. Um, we did a Christmas show. And we didn't have my family on it. It was just... Fred McMurray was on, and uh, the Osmond brothers, I think, and um, we had the Osmond's parents were on. They played saxophones with Fred McMurray. It was funny. Um, And then the next year, I brought on uh, my wife and our first baby, 
Claudine was uh, my wife's name. Um, and then, then I guess from then on, we started bringing the family on. My mother and father, my brothers. We sang together again for the first time like in years and years and years on the Christmas shows they were always on. And then my nieces and nephews and um, it, was, it was fun. And it just developed, uh, it become a completely family Christmas show. And year after year, our regular viewers would, would look forward to the Christmas show to see how the children had grown and what was happening with the, with the family and with my brothers and we'd sing some songs and you know, it was wonderful. Yes, the Christmas specials. They start as just a normal episode set at Christmas time, but blossom into a televised Williams family gathering and the public ate it up. They even continued for a few years after the show went off the air. According to our friends over at ChristmasTVHistory.com, Williams' holiday shows were usually the highest rated installments of each season, and included elaborate costumes, sets, and even special effects. But it was a song that was written for the second Christmas special that cemented Andy Williams as a Christmas icon. It's the song you're wondering how I could have gotten this far into the episode without playing. Well, I'll play a taste of it for you now and let Andy tell you how it came to be. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year George Weil, who was a vocal director, uh, who wrote all of the choir stuff and all of the all of the duets and, and trios and things that were that I did with all the guests, he wrote a song just for the show. I think the second Christmas show we did called "Most Wonderful Time of the Year." So I did that, you know, every Christmas, and then other people started doing it. And suddenly, it's become not suddenly, but over the 30 years has become a big standard. It's, uh, I think it's one of the top 10 Christmas songs of all time now. All came about from the show. Now, I would say that's the majority of people's favorite Andy Williams Christmas song, and with good reason. But I have to say, for me personally, it might be tied with Happy Holidays, the holiday season. It's the holiday season. The holiday season. So dee-doo. And Dickory Dock, don't forget to hang up your socks just exactly at 12 o'clock. You'll be coming down the chimney, coming down the chimney, coming down the chimney, down. Anytime you can work whoop dee doo into your song and still sound cool, you got a real winner on your hands. Another big Christmas hit for Andy Williams was a special version of Jingle Bells written by his old partner, Kay Thompson. Oh, look who has to have his girlfriend write his hits for him. Hold on, partner. There ain't no need to diminish the contributions Miss Thompson brought to Andy Williams' career. Oh, sorry, it was just a joke. Even though they did have a romantic relationship at one point, she was really an excellent collaborative partner who helped his career a great deal. But just a few sentences ago, you reduced her down to just a simple girlfriend. Oh, I don't believe that. I was trying to make a satirical joke by saying something contrary to what I meant. Like, I was pretending to be a different character for that one-liner. Pretending to be a different character? I don't get it. That sounds ridiculous. This got awkward. And speaking of awkward, The Andy Williams Show aired from 1962 to 1971. And as I mentioned, there were Christmas specials for a few years after it went off the air. Why is that awkward, you might ask? I didn't, but now I'm curious. Well, as we also mentioned, these Christmas specials were big Williams family affairs. But Williams and his wife, Claudette, separated in 1970 and eventually divorced in 1975. So how do you handle that in the Christmas specials that were so centered on family? I'll let Andy explain. 
NBC wanted me to continue doing the Christmas show, which was odd because I was separated from my wife then, but they didn't seem to care. They just wanted the Christmas show. We did that, I think, three years after the show went off. Well, we didn't try and pretend that, it, that we were uh, together. Um, the Christmas show would take place in my mother and father's house. Claudine would arrive with the children, separate from me, and I was already in the house with my brothers and something like that. So, uh, and we were friendly on the show, as we were in private life. And I got a, I, uh, I mean, one time, um, Warren Beatty said to me, I just love the Christmas show, the way the honesty about it, that there are couples who are divorced or separated, um, have children who get together at Christmas time, are happy, loving couples with their children. Uh, he said, I just love the idea that you, did that, that you do that. And I think a lot of people felt that way too. They may have thought it was a little strange, but it happens. There are other, we weren't the only ones that were divorced or separated. I don't know whether we were divorced then or not. I don't think so. Uh, there are a lot of families, I think, that because of children get together. There are a lot of families who, who get, a lot of people who get divorced that are very friendly after they get divorced. And that's the way I, I am with Claudine. I have, always have been. So that's a little mini biography of Mr. Christmas, Andy Williams. To learn more about Mr. Williams, check out his autobiography, Moon River and Me, at your local library. It's also available on audiobook, so you can actually have Andy Williams read it to you. There are also more of these interview clips I've been playing, and they're on YouTube, and I'll put a link in the show notes at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com, and I hope you'll enjoy a little Williams goodness. I chose this as the topic today because Andy Williams passed away exactly six years ago on the day this episode drops. I'd like to think that I'm doing my very small part to help his legacy live on. And before we move on to the rest of the show, I'd like to play one more Williams song. It's not original of his, and he never released a studio album of it, but he sang it on one of his Christmas specials. And I found it when I first started doing research into Andy a few years ago. It's a song that really stuck with me as a song that could very well be the message of this podcast. I'll read a few of the lyrics. You feel the nicest feeling in the air around Christmas time. You get the warmest greetings full of holiday cheer. And wouldn't the world be a nice place to live in if everybody would be the nicest, warmest, friendliest, Christmassy sort of people every day of the year? Isn't that a great thought? Thanks, Andy. You feel the nicest feeling in the air around Christmas day. You get the warmest greetings full of holiday cheer. And wouldn't the world be a nice place to live in if everybody would be the nicest, warmest, friendliest, Christmassy sort of people every day of the Now, before we turn our attention to our other finalists, I've got to tell you about two more imaginary listeners you're about to encounter. First, there's the OG imaginary listener, the one that sounds kind of like Kermit the Frog. My name is Carl, but don't expect him to use my name. He never does. So true. But then, there's this guy. Hey, baby, it's me, the ghost of Bing Crosby. Yeah, this guy claims to be the ghost of Bing Crosby, and in the segment you're about to hear, he is upset that I haven't done an episode about Bing Crosby, so he tries to hijack the show with Frog Guy. Carl! Anyway, that should be all the setup you need. Now let's learn more about our other Merry Music Madness finalist, Bing Crosby. Malakalikimaka is a thing to say. 
on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. Okay, for today's feature, we're finally going to talk about a true legend of Christmas. The one and only... Hey, Tim. Yes, imaginary listener, that sounds kind of like Kermit the Frog. I'm kind of in the middle of something here. I just thought you should know that there's a delivery guy at the front door who needs you to sign for a package. Probably the Christmas present you bought your wife. Oh, thanks. Uh, hang on, folks. I'll be right back. Okay, he's gone. Finally, now we can take over the show. I've been trying for a year to get Tim to do a feature on old Bing Crosby. Well, today, I wait no more. Come on, frog guy. We're taking a stroll down memory lane. Or, to put it another way... What? Where did you get a band? We're off on the road to Bing Crosby. We're gonna find What's going on in here? Uh Uh-oh. There was no delivery guy because I haven't even bought my wife's present yet. You better go buy her something right now. Oh, maybe you're right. There's only 10 days left until... Wait a minute! I'm not going anywhere! What do you guys think you're doing? I can explain everything. It was all Ghost Bing's fault. Hey! Well, it was! Look, I'm just tired of waiting for you to do a segment about me, so I decided to make it happen myself. You do realize I was just about to launch into a segment about Bing Crosby when you interrupted me. Huh? Yes! I've been telling you all year I was going to do a segment on Bing Crosby. I thought you were just patronizing me. I said it in the intro to this show! I gotta be honest, baby, I don't really listen to this podcast. Of course I'm doing a segment on Bing Crosby. Bing was a superstar, the likes of which we may never see again. He was a giant in the music industry and an amazingly prolific actor. It'd be like if you merged Michael Jackson and Samuel L. Jackson into the same person. Which you should totally picture, by the way, because it is hilarious. Whether you're picturing Samuel L. Jackson doing the moonwalk and those sparkly socks, or the king of pop popping caps in Pulp Fiction, that is a funny mental image. You're welcome. Even that combination doesn't fully encapsulate what a huge, influential star Bing Crosby was. Plus, he's a bona fide Christmas legend, so it's only appropriate that we take a look back at the life and career of the man who has brought so much Christmas joy to generations of people. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Harry Crosby Jr. was born in Tacoma, Washington in 1903. Harry Crosby? I thought we were talking about Bing Crosby. Surely you didn't think he was born with the name Bing. I don't know what was happening back then. The 1900s is like ancient times. Who knows what they thought a good name was? No, when Harry was six years old, he was a big fan of the newspaper comic called The Bingville Bugle. One day a neighbor saw him laughing at the comic strip and started calling him Bingo from Bingville. And the name stuck, minus the O, and he became Bing. I had a comic origin story before it was cool. Crosby eventually went to college at Gonzaga University, which just so happens to be the alma mater of my lovely wife. While there, he sang and played drums on the side, but actually was studying to become a lawyer. We might have lost one of the great music voices of the ages to the legal profession had Bing not found out some important information from a lawyer he was working for. I was studying law part-time, and going to school part-time and playing the drums and singing part-time. And uh, I thought I, had, uh, I could be a lawyer because I'd been in a lot of elocution contests and, and uh, belonged to the debating society, and I thought I had a facility for saying things on my feet, and I uh, lulled myself into the belief that I could be a great criminal lawyer and the, the drama of the courts and the, the appeal to me. But uh, I found out after I'd been working about six or eight months for this lawyer, and he was a... Uh, very well-known lawyer in the town, and a good one, that I was making as much money playing the drums as he was uh, pr- pursuing the, <laughs> the law. So I gave up the law and uh, enlarged my 
my uh, entertainment career. Boy, that voice doesn't really sound like your voice at all, does it? Drop it, baby. In the mid-1920s, Crosby formed a duo with his friend from school, Al Rinker, and the pair went to Los Angeles to make it in the music biz. It helped that Al's sister was Mildred Bailey, a jazz singer who'd already made a name for herself. She introduced the boys to band leader Paul Weiderman, who brought the boys onto his very successful band. In days of Bing and Al picked up another singer, Harry Barris, and became the Rhythm Boys trio. They toured with Witherman's Orchestra for a while and then toured on their own. There was a lot of partying during this time, especially by Bing. In fact, when the Rhythm Boys were hired for a Hollywood film called The King of Jazz, Bing had to miss out on some of it due to a drunk driving arrest. A fellow ran into me with his car and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's an accident. I took the young lady into uh, to the lobby of the uh, nearby hotel to see that she was administered to, and the police arrived, and they said, you appear to have uh, been drinking. I said, yes. They said, well, come along. They took me down to the station, locked me up. The next day, Whiteman got me out on bail because we were right in the middle of this picture. And uh, I had to go down about 11 days later for an appearance in front of the judge. So I went down all... I'd been playing golf. I had on golf knickers and loud socks and a loud sweater, very, very gaily dressed and sure of myself that there'd be nothing to it. The judge says, it says here on the complaint you'd been drinking. I said, yes. He said, well, don't you know there's a prohibition law in the state? In the country, I said, yes, but nobody pays any attention to it. He said, well, he says, you'll have 30 days to pay a lot of attention to it. And there I was for 30 days, the last half of the sentence, so they they let me go out to the set with a a policeman in company with me. As Bing started to get more and more solo attention, he started to take the Rhythm Boys less and less seriously. As he puts it in his book, Call Me Lucky, actually, Ghost Bing, you want to read this for us? Sure, baby. Toward the end of our engagement at the Grove, we didn't take our responsibilities seriously enough to suit Abe Frank. Frank was running the Coconut Grove and the Ambassador Hotel, but the Grove was just his pet. He was an elderly, serious sort who disliked anything that disrupted the even tenor of the nightly routine at the Grove. When people were supposed to appear, he expected them to be on deck. So when I failed to get back for the Tuesday night show once too often, he docked my wages. Of course, Abe was in his rights, legalistically speaking, but I thought he was pretty small about it, so I quit. I was encouraged in this defiance by an offer from Max Sennett to make a series of movie shorts for him. I had made one for him already, and working in pictures looked like easy money to me. Thanks. You nailed it. Bing also had his first number one solo hit with Out of Nowhere. This was significant not only for earning Bing more popularity, but also for his revolutionary singing style at the time. You see, up till then, most artists would belt out their music like they did in a live performance. Old Man River! Yikes! Exactly. Bing decided to take a more intimate approach and get right up on the mic and sing in a style that would become known as crooning. You came to me from out of nowhere. You took my heart and you found it free. Now, apparently, Bing didn't care for the term crooning, but it captured the imagination of music lovers everywhere and inspired a million people to follow in his footsteps. Folks like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Mel Torme, and Michael Buble all owe a huge debt to the trailblazing work of Bing Crosby. 
Soon, Bing was signed to a deal with Paramount Pictures, and that led to another iconic piece of the Bing legacy that has to do with his friend, Bob Hope. Then I went on the radio, and so did he, and I went out to Hollywood first, and then he came three or four years later, and then I used to work on his radio show, and he'd work on mine, and the writers for the radio show used to cook up these gags about how fat I was, or how hammy he was, or... You know, just needling one another. And from that, the people who were at Paramount thought, well, why don't we put these two guys together in a movie? And that's how it developed. The movie Paramount teamed them up on was Road to Singapore. And that began a series of road movies that teamed Hope and Crosby going on the road to places. They made nine of them in all. Not box office juggernauts, but very successful. We're off on the road to Morocco. This taxi is tough on the spine. Speaking of movies, Bing won an Academy Award for the 1944 film Going My Way, where he played Father O'Malley, a Catholic priest. A role he was initially going to turn down because he didn't think that a crooning minstrel who owned racehorses, you can't tell but I'm doing quotesy fingers, should be portraying a priest. But the Pope actually wrote to him and convinced him to take the part. He reprised the role in The Bells of St. Mary's and was nominated for Academy Award again. He didn't win, but that made him one of the very few actors to be nominated more than once for playing the same character. But I think no movie impacted Bing as much as when he starred opposite Fred Astaire in the 1942 film Holiday Inn. Now, the movie as a whole didn't make a big splash on the world, but one particular song in that movie, written by Irving Berlin, really made all the difference in Bing's life. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know The song about longing for a traditional snowy Christmas was especially resonant in 1942, seeing as that particular Christmas season was mired with the attack on Pearl Harbor, and there were many American soldiers overseas who were indeed longing for a Christmas like the ones they used to know, and many more at home missing their loved ones. The song became a massive hit. It was number one in 1942, and then again in 45, and again in 46. It was even popular enough to spawn a whole separate movie called White Christmas in 1954. After World War II was over, Bing took a particular interest in an invention that was brought back from Germany, something called the tape recorder. You see, until then, all these radio shows were all done live. Bing had the idea to tape them ahead of time. While many joked it was so he could play more golf, it was actually, well, actually it was probably part that, but by taping the shows, it allowed him to edit them, and he could cut out the goof-em-ups and bad notes and give people the highest quality performance possible. Not long after Bing started doing it, it became the industry standard for people to tape their radio shows. As is Bing's custom at Christmas time, he opens the program with a Destiny Fidelis, and as usual, he'll sing it first in Latin and then in English with the studio audience joining him. Yes, Ken, I think it would be very fitting if our guests here would uh, join in the chorus of Come All Ye Faithful. Bing, I think it'd be very nice if the home folks listening in all over the world would join in, too. Oh, it would indeed. Gather around now, folks, wherever you may be, and help us sing this eternal hymn. Ades de fidelis, plati triumphantes. One of the highlights of Bing's radio show was his annual Christmas show. I'll let the one and only Gene Kelly elaborate. Beginning on radio in 1935 and continuing on television from the early 60s on, Bing's Christmas shows became a yuletide tradition. Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without Bing Crosby. Over the years, and particularly during the holiday season, 
Bing had the unique ability to make us feel we were all somehow members of the same family. So let's look upon tonight as a kind of family reunion. And what more fitting way to begin than with Bing's immediate family, his wife Catherine, his children Harry, Mary Frances, and Nathaniel, whom we all watched grow up on his Christmas shows. There they are. Great brood. This is uh, Nathaniel. I'm five years old. That's right. And this is uh, Mary Frances. I'm seven years old. Hello. And you? This is Harry. I'm eight years old. And this is Catherine. And I'm not talking. <laughs> the annual specials were required Christmas viewing every year with a slew of celebrity guests. Bing recorded his last holiday special in September of 1977. One of his special guests that year was David Bowie, which led to another classic Christmas song. I pray my wish will come true As for my child and your child too I'll save the day of glory I play my best for him when men of good will live in peace, live in peace again. Sadly, Bing passed away that year before the special aired, but he left behind an amazing Christmas legacy. But as I was researching this segment, I wondered why Bing is not one of those artists people talk about outside of Christmas. I feel like you hear more about his contemporaries like Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, and even Bob Hope. And after really digging into Bing's life, I was even more surprised. He's had an amazing impact on both the music and the television and film industries, yet most people from my generation and later just know him as that Christmas guy. But I think that's partially because of the phenomenal success of White Christmas and how he definitely leaned into that part of his legacy. As well he should. White Christmas was the biggest selling single of all time, beating anything released by the Beatles, Elvis, or Michael Jackson. So... While before I did my research for this, I couldn't name a single non-Christmas Bing Crosby song, I could definitely name a ton of Christmas ones he did. Melikaliki Maka, Christmas in Killarney, Silver Bells, Jingle Bells, All the Bells. I would have to say this dude shaped the sound of Christmas more than any one single person I can think of. In fact, the album art for the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast from day one has been a rip-off, I'm, I'm sorry, an homage to one of Bing's Christmas album covers. So I guess we should wrap things up with a quote from Bing himself. Happy to oblige, old buddy. <laughs> no ghost, Bing. I meant the real deal. Okay, I can dig a little blast from the past. Here's a holiday message from the one and only Bing Crosby. Really, I guess Christmas has a way of calling up the best in people time to review your blessings to renew your faith to share the warmth of the season with the new the old friends with family it's a time of joy and closeness a time to look back with gratitude at being able to come this far and a time to look ahead with hope and optimism to a future day when there'll be peace on earth and goodwill towards all men We wish you all the blessings of the season and a dream to place under your pillow to see you through the cold nights. Until next time. May your days be merry and bright and may all your Christmases be 
we have it. It's Andy versus Bing in the contest for the whole thing. And their fates are in your hands. You only have until December 22nd to vote. You can find the link at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com or in our threads, Facebook, or the app formerly known as Twitter. It's totally anonymous. You don't have to provide any personal information. You just have to vote with your whole Christmas heart on who should be the winner of Merry Music Madness. So get out there and vote. And then come back and join us on December 23rd as we announce the winner. Until then, you believers, keep laughing all the way. And that was Christmas 1983. Actually, Dad, it's 2023. Oh. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes, and email us about it at christmas at tancast.com, we'll send you a free Can't Wait for Christmas sticker. If you'd like to see the show notes or leave a comment on this or any other episodes, you can go to our official website, can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. While you're there, you'll find a link to our official Zazzle store, where you can grab customizable t-shirts, ornaments, stickers, and all sorts of other Christmas-themed items all year long. We'd love to connect with you on social media. On TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, we are Can't Wait for Christmas Pod. And on the app formerly known as Twitter, we are at Christmas Pod. We Wish You a Merry Christmas was performed by the United States Marine Corps Band, and this amazing version of Jingle Bells on the Accordion was performed by the wonderful and talented Christian Nowicki. All other music and sounds used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and they are used for purposes of commentary and review. No infringement is intended. Okay, boys, did I forget anything? God bless us, everyone. Merry Christmas! You see, in the episode where we discussed Andy Williams, there was a part earlier in that show where we looked at crazy candy cane flavors that had come out that year. One of them was clam-flavored. But I had trouble trying to say the words clam cave... (laughs) I did have trouble trying to say these words. Nope, the closest I can come to a story like that is when a beer glass dropped on the stage next to me in a show in Idaho. Idaho? Idaho? First of all, Idaho is not a place. Second of all, it was in Utah. Look, I'm just tired of waiting for you to do a segment about me, so I decided to make... Bing. Bing got tongue-tied, baby. Look, I'm just tired of waiting for you to do a segment about me, so I decided to make it happen myself. I decided to make it... Let's try that one more time. I get old Bing to say this line right. I was encouraged in this defiance by, why am I Southern all of a sudden? Now, apparently, Bing didn't care for the term crooning, but it captured the imagination of music lovers everywhere and inspired a million people to follow in his footsteps. Folks like Frank Oz. (laughs) No! (laughs) I like the idea of Frank Oz the crooner. Mm, Sing you a song, I will. Yes. The movie Paramount teamed them up in was 1904's... No, it could not have been 1904's. 
It must have been 1940s. No, it was 1934s. I think it's 1934s. I'm just not going to say the year. I typed the year wrong, and now I don't have time to look it up. Sorry, year. You're getting cut out of the show. After World War II was over, Bing took a particular interest in an invention that was brought back from Journey. Journey? It was brought back from Journey. Don't stop the outtakes. Keep saying all the 